Good evening, everyone. I gave everybody uh, an extra minute. I don't know, where are the rest of you? You guys are dropping like flies. It's spring, yeah, that's right. Everybody went to the shore or something like that. That's cool. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for the time that we're going to be able to spend together this evening as we think about your word, as we think about the very words of scripture that you have inspired, that we might know you. We pray that you would help us to think well, to think accurately, to think appropriately about scripture, that we might seek to see what it is that you have said and how we might understand who you are and who we are and our relationship with you, how we might grow to become more like Christ. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. So tonight, we're, we're going to change the schedule just a little bit. Normally, I've I'm, I'm been giving you 20-ish minutes or so at the, at the start to talk about your homework. Um, we've got a lot to do tonight. I know you're probably thinking, well, we do a lot every week. How could we have a lot to do tonight? W- what I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to give you more time in the middle of the class to do work at your tables. Uh, so there's some, there's some exercises in your workbook that I want us to work through tonight. I want to make sure we have enough time for that. So we're going to, to shorten the time uh, up front here right now, talking at your tables. So really, I just want you to uh, review your homework from last week, uh, the logical paraphrase, talk about how you did with that. Uh, did it help you at all? Think through what what Paul is communicating in those chapters. Was it not helpful at all? Uh, so think about those things. Discuss that at your table. We'll do some brief kind of Q&A after that. And then probably by 7.40, I want to be done with all of that. And we're going to move into the next lesson because I'm going to give you some time during the 8 o'clock hour to work at your tables and, and discuss. So that's what we're doing tonight. Uh, so go for it. Take, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, talk about the lesson from last week. Then we'll, we'll talk. And uh, if you guys have no questions, that's even better because then we'll go faster. Uh, but you can ask questions if you want. Don't take that as a discouragement. Uh, and then we will uh, move into the next lesson. So go ahead talk about your work from last week, and then we'll talk about it together in 10-15 minutes. All right, everybody. Let's, uh, let's talk about this. Um, I'm just going to go right to you. Does anybody have anything they would like to say about the homework? I'm not asking for general feedback, so don't just say whatever you want to say. Anything, anybody have anything, anything they thought was helpful, challenging, unhelpful, 
questions, etc., about the homework from last week. Cheryl thought it was good. I th thumbs up, I guess that's... You like it a lot. Good. Keep saying stuff like that. Okay. Good. Yeah. You can keep... Whenever you want to say that, that's fine. Right. So thinking through the logic of a passage and then being forced to try to paraphrase it in a sense makes you realize how all these different pieces fit together, that they're not just these kind of random collection of sayings. Uh, and that's really important because that's, that's what it is. And it makes you think, I think, when we talk about, we talked a couple weeks ago about uh, memorizing passages of Scripture. And then I think last week I, I read to you that quote that where Piper says that when he realized that that the Bible was not just a collection of divine pronouncements, but it, that these, these books were, had structure and the, the author was progressing through an argument and he was, he was using logic and things like that, that he started to realize, boy, I, I shouldn't just memorize verses. I should, I should memorize sections of the Bible so that I could understand and, and have it in context when I'm, uh, when I'm repeating it. So I'm not just taking something and saying, well, you know, the Bible says this, but you're actually taking it out of context. So, yeah. Seriously, nothing else? Yeah, join. Yeah, yeah, phrasing, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, right. So using the phrasing, uh, which we learned in like week three or four or something like that, as a tool to help you construct a paraphrase. So trying to take it piece by piece. And then you are probably, if you're doing phrasing, you're probably already able to identify those connecting words, those logical markers, and so you're, you're already getting an idea of the flow of the text when you do that. Yeah, that's good. That's a good observation. It all fits together. It's almost like there's a grand plan. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So noticing, noticing Paul uses this word blameless or these this term blameless and innocent and then cross-referencing, using another one of our skills to think through where else does the Bible talk about this, this idea of being blameless. Job was blameless, but does that mean Job was perfect? Well, no. Right? And so what, is, yeah, what does that look like? And, and later in, in Philippians um, 3, where Paul talks about that he was blameless, under the law, but that's before he was, he was saved. So we know that being blameless in that regard is not actually that great. Um, so it's important to think through stuff like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. I thought I was saved by grace. Yeah. So in me, uh, <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. So let me put you at ease. You are saved by grace. Uh, but when we come to stuff like that in Scripture, we, we can't just brush it off. And it's like, oh, well, it, sa- it says that, but he must, he, he must yeah, he, he couldn't have meant it that way or, or something like that. So you got to ask, well, what is he actually saying? Um, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what is he actually saying? Now, if you take that in isolation, you're going to come up with some really weird theology about what it means to be saved and how you can be saved by works and things like that. And that's, of course, not what Paul's saying at all. And you don't have to go very far in the rest of the book to figure out that that's not what he's saying unless he's contradicting himself in the same book. Uh, which, depending on the type of commentators you read, you'll have people that will say things like that. But, uh, yeah, reading it in context and seeing how the argument progresses and, and how that, that verse connects with what comes before and what comes after is very important for understanding what he means right there. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so to answer that kind of a question, we would need to do what we're going to be doing tonight, which is talking about studying words. So it's a good question. But another one, if, why does he say work out and not work for? Work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Is there significance in that? So we would need to go and look at, well, what's, What's that word? Where else is that word used? And, and that kind of thing. So we'll talk about that tonight. So, yeah, Bob. But you're going to. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, there's a number of places. Bob, uh, if you didn't hear him, was saying that at a, at a previous church, they had somebody who came in who had memorized the Gospel of Mark and, and recited it. it. Was it at a church service? or Okay, so recited it at a service. And um, there's other places that you can go. I can give you some links. Um, there's one that I know of um, right off the top of my head, and I, I want to say it was at a Together for the Gospel conference, and David Platt, some of you might know the name David Platt. He's currently the head of the International Missions Board for the Southern Baptist Convention, and he's transitioning out of that role. He's the teaching pastor at McLean Bible Church in Northern Virginia. David Platt, for his message, recited the first eight chapters of Romans. You want to talk about powerful. And, the, and one of the things that I think about when uh, occasionally, this is, this, you're getting me off subject now. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate that. But as long as I'm here, I'm going to say it. One of the things that, I t- that I will, I'll tell people, particularly when we, you know, we've, I don't, we've been doing more uh, scripture reading as a part of our service. So whether that's Benjamin reading it or somebody getting up and reading it or us reading it together, we've been doing more scripture reading as a part of the service. And some people will come and ask us, well, why are we doing that? That's, you know, other churches do that. That seems kind of weird. 
You know, some, well, some people, for some people, it's like this is very liturgical. This is what liturgical churches do. One thing I would say is, well, I think 1 Timothy 4 says that we should devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, so I think what we're doing is biblical. But second is uh, the only time that we, when we gather together, that you can be 100% certain that what you are hearing is truth from God is when we read the Bible. Once I open my mouth and start saying things that I've prepared, it's fallible. Now, in as far as it matches with what Scripture says, then it's truthful, but it's not pure truth. It's not God's Word. And so when, when I start my sermons, a lot of times I like to read through the passage of Scripture. Why? Because it's the most important thing you will do. If I never said anything again after that and I only read Scripture, you would leave having been fed with the Word of God. All right, so uh, that was free. That was not authoritative because it wasn't the Word. But uh, I, think, I think that's why we, that's one of the reasons why we do that. That's what Alistair Begg does. And we love Alistair Begg. Uh, okay. Anything else? General questions. I've got a couple of minutes before I'm going to feel pressured to move on. All right, cool. Uh, so on your, if you grabbed a um, copy of the notes on your way in, the second slide here I have is, this is the logical paraphrase that the workbook did of Philippians 2, 12 to 18. We're not going to read through that. Um, it's a lot, so I'm going to let you read through that on your own time. And you can see how they did it. What's that? There's a typo, thanks. Well... I didn't copy and paste it. I typed it myself, and I didn't proofread. My believing. That's close. It's a paraphrase. That's what that means. No, it's not. Beloved, yeah. They're, what, the paraphrase? Oh, it's, defi- it's definitely longer. It's an explanatory paraphrase. So you're, you are interpreting what it's saying in your writing. I uh, know he, he's always trouble. I know. Yeah, calm it down there. All right. So we're not going to talk about that. Um, so no more comments about any typos on this page. Okay. Tonight, oh, I have, if you don't have a copy of uh, the workbook, I made copies of tonight's lesson. Does anybody need those? I know it only took me like three months to figure out that I could do this. You love paper? Yeah, I like killing trees. You guys want one or two? Two? This is, this is the, sorry, this is the, the copy of the chapter from the workbook for tonight. So it says, every word of God proves true at the top. If you have the workbook, you have this already. Okay? If you don't have the workbook, then you probably need this. Does anybody else need it? Or if you didn't bring your workbook? I have my workbook. Okay. All right. Well, I don't... I mean, you can, you can have it if you want. I think we got plenty, so... In fact, you could have all of them. Okay. So, 
Tonight we're going to talk about studying uh, individual words in the Bible. Um, why do you guys think that studying a, a particular word of Scripture and understanding uh, what it means, why does that matter? If it does, does it matter? Okay, it might, it might change what, the meaning of what you're reading. Okay, there's multiple meanings for words. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to come back and talk about that. Yeah, Karen. Sure. Yeah, so it could tie it in with, with different scripture that maybe you didn't previously see before. I, I can think of situations just in recent years as going through divinity school where I was, I was writing papers and I would find that there were some, some words that were very, very unique, like used like six times in the Bible. And it was used in this particular context and in this verse that I was studying. And it made me think, this might be important that it was used in this one, in, in just these two contexts. Why is this important? So thinking through what something that maybe you wouldn't see before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All the different. Yeah. What are yeah? What are all the different terms that that the Hebrews used for the the word of God or the law or the command and all of those of those things? Why is that? Yeah. Why is that significant? Yeah. Yep. You think of a theological reason why we would be concerned about what just one word means. God inspired it. Did he just inspire the thoughts and then let the authors pick the words, whatever they wanted? Yeah. Now, he picked the words. Now, he allowed the authors to do it with their own personalities, so it wasn't like they were taking dictation, right? But every word in Scripture is exactly what God wants it to be. That's what we mean by inspiration. So, yeah. Thanks. I am right. Yeah, Suzanne's saying, I just had a total brain, your name's Suzanne, right? Okay, I'm like thinking to my, I'm thinking to my, no, 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 it wasn't a breakthrough, I'm thinking to myself, it might be, it might be more like a breakdown. I just had a, I had a mini panic attack thinking, oh my gosh, wait a minute, it's Suzanne, right? Yes, okay, just making sure. This happens, this happens with my kids though, I call my kids different names all the time. All right. Yeah. Yep. Sure. Don't they just sort of push that stuff around? 
yes and no. I mean, so there's, there's all sorts of games that people can play when it comes to doing interpretation. Um, so we're going to look at ways that we can study particular words, but what's important is that we, we keep in mind everything else that we're learning at the same time. Okay? So one of the problems that we can run into with word studies is we, we get so engrossed in this one particular word that then we start to build this whole interpretation, this whole theology around it, and we forget where that word occurs in its context and, and so forth. And so we will have to deal with how various people interpret things. And so the, the question is, can your interpretation be supported by what the rest of Scripture teaches, by where the word fits in its context? Uh, and uh, so the reality is, just because somebody who published a book says it doesn't mean it's true. And so, and there are a lot of people that have lots of agendas in saying certain things about, about Scripture. So, uh, but one of the things that we need to, to remember is that uh, one of the things that Cheryl, Cheryl said, words have meanings, meanings with an S. Um, there's, if you were going to an English dictionary, I think you would see most words can be used multiple different ways, and they're not all related, right? So, uh, words have multiple meanings. What a word means in any particular uh, way that it's used is determined by the context that it's in, right? And so, one of the, one of the, the mistakes that we can make when we study words in the Bible is that we can go, we can, we can use all the tools that we have and we can find where that word occurs and what the definitions, uh, the, the possible meanings of that word could be, and then we'll go back and we'll look at our, at our context, and then we just pick the one that we like the best or the one that fits our theology the best. And so we can't do that. Uh, we have to think what would the author be intending this word to mean in this context? Sometimes it's going to fit what we think it should fit. Sometimes we are going to be challenged by what we see in Scripture, and that's good. So, here's an example. Multiple meanings. How many, how many different meanings do you think you could come up for the word run? What does it mean to run? Move your feet really fast. Okay, run for office. So com compete in an election. Operate machinery. A hole in your stocking. That's actually one of my examples, ironically. So there's four right there. Yeah. Say again. To drip or flow, so like a running faucet. Yeah. To leave, I got to run. Yep, sure. Yeah, yeah, got to run a computer program. Yeah, a hot streak. He's on a run. Yep, yep. Janet. So if you're playing rummy, you can. If you're playing rummy. There's a run. It's a it's a type of uh, play that you make in in rummy. Yeah, Nate. 
consecutive numbers? A run of numbers? Sure. Yeah, a run of consistent. Oh, a run in baseball, which is a point. You know if somebody doesn't watch baseball, if they say, how many points does the team have? Don't ever say that to me. I don't know why you're laughing. I'm serious. There's a lot of different uses for the word run. There was a book I was reading this week. They used this as an example, so I didn't come up with this one by myself. But they said in the, uh, I want to say it was the Random House Collegiate Dictionary, there are 135 possible definitions for the word run in English. So, now thankfully, most of the words that you will be working with in the Bible don't have that many definitions. Hmm? It's random. It's ran- it's, just, they just pick things at random. So, here's a bunch of the examples uh, we, we probably got more than this, but I run two miles a day. She has a run in her nylons. That grapevine runs through the fence. My nose runs when it's cold, when I have a cold. I need to run to the store. My new computer runs faster than my previous one. I try not to let the water run. I forgot to highlight one there when I'm not using it because it runs up the water bill. I hope I don't run out of gas, and someday I'll run for president. Now, How do we determine what the word run means? Context. So we have to understand what goes around a particular word to help us understand how the author is using it. Now, occasionally, an author will have a play on words and will use a word to mean two of its meanings and, and that's a literary technique. And so, and we, we can kind of spot that in English. Um, you'll see that kind of stuff in poetry uh, a lot. And, and, uh, but it doesn't happen as much as we probably think it happens in the Bible. And so when you're doing a word study, sometimes you'll sit down um, and if you're, if you're in a Bible study and you'll start talking about what the word means and somebody will say, well, I heard it meant this. And Somebody else will say, well, I heard it meant this. And rather than pick which one's right, because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, um, we say, oh, well, the author probably meant both. Usually that's not true. The author usually intends to mean something by it. There are times where there's some double meaning and, and, uh, and, and a particular literary technique that the author is using to try to make a point, and he's, you know, he's... Um, using a play on words, Uh, but when I go into it, I want to assume most of the time that he's not doing that, that he intends the word to have one meaning, all right? So because each word can have multiple meanings, another thing is that they're not all used at the same time. Like I just said, it's not, uh, it means everything it could possibly mean at once. Because when we start doing that, then we start coming up with some really kind of weird theological things. Use the word run, for example. Say, if I if I'm say I'm going to run to the store uh, or I'm going to go running, and somebody says, well, but the word run can also be used for competition for a political office. And so the subtext here, the, the deeper meaning, is that he intends to be president. Now, that sounds ridiculous, but take it out of that context, put it into to a sermon where somebody says, you know what this word could also mean? It could also mean this. And so the author 
the deeper meaning here is that the author is this. And everybody's like, oh, yes. Now we're learning the Bible. And I'm sitting there being like, yeah, that's not how it works. That's, that's not how language works. But people are, I think, tempted to do stuff like that because it makes you feel like, oh, now I'm really learning it. I'm like, I, I think there's ways for you to actually learn the, what it means and, and learn what the original language is saying and, and things like that that don't require you to do that. And I think that's more faithful to Scripture. So when we're doing word studies, we're seeking, one, to establish what the word could mean. So what are the possible things it could mean? Well, this is range of meaning. And then we want to see, based on that and based on the context of what we're studying, what does a word actually mean in the context that it occurs? So we're going to talk about four, four basic steps to doing a word study. The first step is to, to choose a word to study. We're going to, we're going to go through each one of these on a separate slide, um, so I'm not going to explain them right now. First, we choose a word to study, and then we find the original language word, right? Because the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Greek. And so I know, gasp. The Bible is written in Greek and Hebrew. So um, just because a word means something in English and it's translated that way in our Bible doesn't necessarily mean that's what the word means in Hebrew or Greek. So words change over time. And so um, I'm trying to think of a, of a good example. I'm blanking on one right now. But there, there are words that are translated in our Bible. Oh, here's a great example. I'm so proud of myself for this. I should run for president. I'm thinking about keeping it to myself now. In, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, let's see if I can find it. Um, the, uh, Paul tells the Thessalonians, See if I can remember where it is. At least I think it's in First Thessalonians. This is what happens when I don't plan this ahead of time. I don't know where I'm going. So there's a place somewhere in one of Paul's writings. Somewhere in the New Testament, pretty sure. You'll recognize it when, when you hear me say it. Uh, so if anybody knows it off the top of their head, uh, where, where Paul says, and this is the, the, the way that the King James Version translates it, Paul says, avoid every appearance of evil. Right? Does anybody know where that is off the top of their head? Okay. But, you, but you, you've heard this before, right? Okay. So now the question is, because I... What I'll, what I'll hear sometimes, and, and, and uh, modern translations usually don't say that. They'll say something like, avoid every form of evil. 522. 522. Thank you. Abstain from every form of evil. So that's the New American Standard. Now, we have to ask the question, not what does 
appearance or what does form mean in English, but what does the, the Greek word that Paul used mean? And I don't remember what the, that word is up top of my head, but it, it can mean uh, type or form. And what happened is the King James translators translated that word with a word that was appropriate for that meaning in 17th century England. The word appearance. The way that some, uh, the, um, the form of something. The type of something. It's, it's appearance. Not necessarily just the way something looks to somebody else. But something's uh, form. So what happens is you'll get people who will say, well, they changed the meaning here. It used to say avoid every appearance of evil, like avoid everything that anybody could even think that you might be doing that might be evil, that might appear to somebody to be evil. The question is, was it actually changing the meaning or has the meaning of the word appearance changed in English so that it doesn't mean quite the same thing as it used to because language changes? And so now we have to translate that Greek word with a word that is more appropriate to use in modern English, which is a word like form or type or kind. So avoid every kind of evil. And so I remember arguing with somebody about this one time where there was probably something they didn't want me to do or something they didn't want somebody else to do. And their argument was, well, you're not even supposed to appear to be doing anything that could potentially be looked at as evil. And I'm like, I don't think that's what the verse is saying. But do you see how somebody could think that? Right? So, we can't just go off of, well, my translation says this, therefore that's what it means. So, we'll talk about comparing translations because something like that could key you into, hey, that's a word I got to look at. Why do they translate it differently? It seems like it may change the meaning. So, maybe I got to understand what that, what that word means. So, we always got to go back and ask, well, what does the Greek or Hebrew word mean? And there's ways for you to do that even if you don't know Greek and Hebrew, and we're going to talk about that. Once you figure out what that word is, then you've got to think through, what's the range of meaning in the original language? What could this Greek or Hebrew word mean? And especially, how was it used in the rest of the Bible? And so, uh, in Hebrew, basically the only written ancient Hebrew is the Bible. So the range of meaning is how the Bible uses it. In Greek... Uh, there's a lot more Greek literature from the first couple, I mean, it's like tons of Greek poetry and writings and Plato and Aristotle and Homer and all these guys. So they all write and so they're all using Greek. So there's a lot more information for us to get with Greek, but we're most concerned with how do the writers of the Bible use Greek. So the way that other secular writers used ancient Greek, that can be important sometimes but it's not as important as the way that the writers of the Bible used Greek. So that's what we're most concerned about. And then once we've discovered what the word can mean, then we want to think through uh, what does the word mean in this context? Uh, how, can we, uh, how can we figure out what, what is the most likely thing that the author means when he uses this word? Yeah, Mike. Okay, so in this word, discernment the most likely meaning. Yes. Okay, so that means when you're trying to determine something, you're putting, in, you're putting your own interpretation. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully in determining, Mike's saying, if we say it's determined, then we're putting our own interpretation in. And if there were an answer key that I could give you that would say, when this word occurs here, it means this, that would be wonderful. But we don't have that. So we're trying to use all of the different tools that we're learning as a part of learning how to study the Bible to, to come to a word and say, based on the context, based on the way that the author uses it and the rest of Scripture uses it and what the theological meaning is and all this kind of stuff, what does it probably mean here? Do we, do we run the chance of misinterpreting what the Bible says when we do this? Yes, but you run that chance when you open the Bible and read it, right? I mean, so there's no infallible way for you to open the Bible and read it and know with 100% certainty, I get exactly what it's saying, I'm never wrong. If somebody tells you that, they're wrong. So... We are always going to be interpreting it. So what what we're looking for is, what can I support with the most evidence from Scripture that is probably the meaning? How can I make the best argument possible for this, right? And then, once we've done that, then we can talk about, now I want to go and I want to check what other people are saying. If I'm the only one who's ever said this, that's probably not great, um, you know, the church has been around for 2,000 years. There's probably very few things that people haven't noticed. And so if you're like, I'm the first person to get this, you're probably not. Uh, or you might be the first person to get it, and it's probably wrong. So... Um, of course, we're, we're not, we don't believe something just because other commentators say it. But as we're reading the Bible with the church, we're, we're coming into submission under the Bible and we're saying, do, do we understand these things correctly? How can I be challenged in my understanding of this? And there's been times I've studied Scripture, I've gone back, I've read some commentaries, and I've thought, boy, I... I think I was way off on this. And then I read their arguments and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Other times I read commentaries and I'm like, I think that person's whack. So I'm not going to go with them. Um, I remember uh, watching a video of John Piper um, talking about studying a particular phrase uh, that was in a very difficult verse. uh, And he was saying, he was talking about doing cross-referencing and doing word studies. And then he got to the end and he said, all right, And then what I wanted to do was I wanted to go and I wanted to see if anybody had ever said this before to make sure I wasn't a wacko. And he found somebody who said it. He's like, okay, so I feel feel more comfortable that there was a Christian commentator who said, hey, this is a possibility. Um, And so we always got to hold our interpretations with with an open hand, knowing that we can be corrected from Scripture. So step one is choose a word to study. All words are equally inspired by God. All words in the Bible are equally given by inspiration of God. But not all of them always merit the same kind of study. One of my Greek professors 
did his doctoral dissertation on the Greek word the. It's a true story. Now, I'm sure there was something really profound about that. I never got it. It went right over my head. I'm sure I can get you his dissertation if you want to read it. Um, so, the, yes, T-H-E, the, the, the word the. Yeah, the guy was smarter than, than everybody. It was embarrassing for us. Yeah, he defended. He became a doctor, so. He's not a Cairn now, so don't go on the Cairn's website and start trying to figure out who it was. It wasn't Cairn. I also had Tom for Greek. It wasn't Tom. So, as we study different passages of Scripture, we need to be keeping our eyes open for words that are important, words that might uh, really affect what a, passage, what a passage means. And so, there's a bunch of different ways that you could go about this. So, what kind of word should you study? Well, a puzzling word that you encounter, something that you're like, I just don't know what that means. Or I, don't, I, I can't figure out how the author is using that word. I don't get how it fits. Or a word that's theologically significant. Words like justification, and sanctification, and regeneration, and things like that. Those are significant theological terms that the authors have specific meanings for that we need to think through, well, how are they used in Scripture? That's how we determine what they mean. A word whose significance is unclear in certain passages. A word that appears infrequently. So if it's a pretty rare word, it might be something where you've got to think through, what, is, what does this mean? Particularly because if it's, if it's that rare and the author's using it, probably using it for a good reason. You got to think through what that means. A word that has a figurative meaning. So we, we believe that the Bible is literal and it always tells the truth, but the Bible uses figures of speech and symbolism sometimes. And so if there are words where that's pretty clear that that's the meaning, then we got to think through how is this word being used figuratively or symbolically? How does the author use that? Uh, a word that occurs frequently in a single passage or is the main theme of a passage. And so um, you think about uh, in the book of Romans, there are some words that occur very frequently, words like law and justify and faith. Um, what, do those, what do those words mean? Same thing in Galatians, similar words. Faith and justify and law occur over and over and over again. And so if, if that's a word that's occurring a lot. In Romans 7, the word law occurs a lot. You've got to think through, what is the word, how is Paul using the word law here? Because it's not always the same as the way that we use the word law. We think of the word law, we think of the rules that are set in place by the government to keep everybody safe and make sure everything happens right uh, or wrong, depending on what your political ideas are. That's not necessarily the way that Paul uses the word law can be used to refer to the moral law, this, this objective standard of right and wrong that God holds everybody to. It can refer to the law of Moses, which is just the first five books of the Bible. Uh, it can refer to a general principle, right? And you think we, we have other things that we use the word law uh, for as well, the New, uh, Newtonian laws of physics. Right? Those are not legally binding dictates of the government. Those are 
general principles that help us understand the way that the world works, things like that. Uh, okay, so you're studying a passage and you come to a word, you're thinking, this word seems especially significant, um, and so I want to I study it. You think, all right, so how do I study it? Well, then you've got to look at what's the original language word. And this is where we need to start using some tools. Um, because most likely, unless you are reading from a Greek or Hebrew Bible, your Bible does not tell you what the Greek or Hebrew word is. And so there's a couple different ways you can do this. You can use a concordance, like this. See how big and I'm sure very cheap this is? can use a concordance. A concordance is a book. It's got nice big type. As I'm sure you can see. It lists all the usages of words in the Bible. And so this is for the new, uh, it's the NIV concordance. So it, it, uh, every word that occurs in the New International Version is listed here with all of the places that it occurs in the Bible. So uh, this page is the word one. So it lists all the occurrences uh, of the word one in Hebrew and in Greek, and it's multiple pages of entries because it occurs a lot. And then next to it, it shows you, there's a little number uh, that shows you the, the Greek or Hebrew words. So there's this whole system of numbering uh, that people who have way too much time on their hands have put together so that every Greek and Hebrew word has a number associated with it. So you don't even need to know the Greek and Hebrew words. You just need to be able to see the number. And then you can go to another resource and look up that number, and it's consistent across all these resources. So a lot of times these numbers are called Strong's numbers, like Strong's concordance. You guys heard of this before? So Strong's numbers, this guy Strong came up with this numbering system, cataloged all the times that these words occur in Scripture, gave them these numbers so that then... You can go in, you can look in a concordance, you can see, okay, when it says this in Philippians 2, the Greek word is this, and it gives you the number, and then you can go and you can look it up in a, in a dictionary that has those numbers keyed to all the words, and you can figure out the words. So that's one way to do it. Uh, that's the old way to do it. It's a good way. You could also use an online Bible study tool to look up the word. This will save you lots of time and frustration. Um, not all online Bible study tools are created equally. So I'm going to show you one called blueletterbible.org. Is anybody familiar with Blue Letter Bible? Has anybody seen this before? Okay. So it's one uh, that's out there that is it's helpful. It's fairly easy to use. Uh, and so I'm going to show you how to do that in a sec. Uh, but you can use that to look up. Uh, you could find the verse that you're studying. You can click on the verse, and it shows you the different words, and then you can click on that, that Strong's number, and it's going to take you to a dictionary entry for that word and show you the list of all the places that it occurs in Scripture. So rather than having to buy a concordance or come to church and use the concordance, you can just do it laying in bed on your iPad. All right? Not that I don't encourage that necessarily as the setting for study, but if you wanted to. Were you going to ask a question, Brent? Sure. Depends on what it is. Um, is there, are there any times where 
So is there, uh, Brent's question is, is there a time where uh, knowing the way that that word is translated in both, in both Hebrew, so if we're studying a Greek word, um, knowing the way that that word is translated in Hebrew, or what it means in Hebrew, how it's defined in Hebrew, would that help us understand what it means in Greek? Um, probably sometimes, but it really depends on the word. So if there are words that come over from Hebrew, um, that might be helpful. Or if there are concepts that are especially Hebrew or Ju Jewish in their uh, origination, that might be helpful. So an example might be the word Christ, right? Um, the Greek word Christ translates a Hebrew word, Mashiach, or Messiah, right? And so there will be some translations that will translate uh, in the New Testament will translate where it says Christ, he'll translate it as Messiah. Well, that's just, that's what the Hebrew word would have been. I don't love that because that's not actually what the Greek says. Greek says Christ. But uh, they're trying to say, this is actually, this is a Jewish idea. And so when we read Christ, we need to be thinking about what does the Old Testament say about the anointed one? How is that used in, in Hebrew? Because that's that's especially the, the idea that the author is drawing on, right? It's probably not real common, um, at least not for the kind of study that we're doing. I mean, I think there are also places where it can be helpful to look at how the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates things. Um, that's probably not something you all need to be doing. Um, it's, it's less important, but there are times where that can be significant for, for things, yeah. Oh, and here's my thing about the number. So when you find the word, the number has, uh, the word has a number next to it, like an H, uh, H something or G something. H stands for Hebrew, G stands for Greek, so it's telling you which language it is, and then it's giving you the number, and it will lead you to uh, a, uh, an entry in something like an expository dictionary. That's like this. This text is slightly larger, so you can be encouraged by that. But it will give you the ability to look up these words and find out what they, what they mean, how they're used in Scripture. This is kind of the easy way to do it. So the hard way to do it is to find every place that they're used in Scripture and study each one of those places individually and then put together what you find to determine a meaning. Right? So the guys that write books like this, that's what they do. And so we are the beneficiaries of their wonderful work. And, uh, and there's, there's a bunch of different ones. This one's by William Mounts. He wrote the textbook that I used uh, for Greek. Um, have any of you heard of Vine's Expository Dictionary? It's a bit of an older one. Yeah, you have one? So it's basically the same thing. I wasn't saying you're old. It's basically the same thing. It will list the different words in Scripture and uh, will give you the ability to look those up. So, now, again, you can do that with an expository dictionary. You can also do it online where they have things like this website I'm going to show you has Vine's expository dictionary as a part of the website because it's old and it's in the public domain, so there's no copyright violation, so they can do that. So, uh, in an effort to be super technological, I made you a video for you to watch. Get excited. All right. In this video, I want to introduce to you a tool that you can use 
uh, and that you will all have access to to do word studies as a part of your Bible study. Uh, traditionally, word studies would require uh, a lot of different books and you'd be flipping through these different books and trying to match up things and you'd be doing a lot of work that way and you can still do word studies that way uh, using books like that. But uh, there's a lot of really good tools on the internet that will actually help you do word studies uh, and they'll be easier for you uh, to use. Uh, now, there are there are a number of different tools on the internet. Not all of them are, are equally good or equally helpful, but one that is, that's pretty good and I think will be helpful for you is called Blue Letter Bible. So it's at blueletterbible.org and it's just a, a Bible study website. But one of the things that they've done is they've really given you the ability to pretty easily do word studies. So I wanna, I wanna show you some of the basics of the first couple steps of doing word studies in this video. So the first step of, of doing a word study is you need to actually pick a word that you want to study and it's gonna be helpful for you to study to understand a passage. Uh, and so let's say that I am studying the book of James. Uh, and so I'm studying, I can click here and select my translation. So I select the New American Standard. And then in this search field, I'll type James 2. So once I click to search there, it'll take me to James 2 in the New American Standard Bible. And I have uh, the text here. And let's say I'm down here at the bottom towards the end of James 2, in James 2.24, and I read, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then I sit back and I say, well, that seems like it's almost a direct contradiction to what Paul says in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. Now, if I believe that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, then I have some work I have to do to figure out what James means here and if he's actually saying something that's, that's the opposite of what Paul says. And people who are opposed to what Christianity believes will point to a verse like this and say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. You can't believe it. And so it's, it's up to us to, to do the work to uh, figure out whether or not that's actually true and, and is the Bible contradicting itself here, or is there something else going on? So uh, in order to, to do the word study, then I need to pick, you know, what word do I want to study? What word is going to be really important here? And, and so I'm going to pick the word justified. Um, that word occurs a couple other times in this context. It occurs here in verse 25 in the same way. Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers? Then if I scroll up a little bit in James 2.21, uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up uh, Isaac, his son, on the altar? And so, uh, and, and I also know just from having studied Paul before that the word justified is, is a pretty important word, uh, especially in the book of Romans. So I want to think through what could that word mean does it mean the same thing here in James 2 as it does uh, in other places, especially in Paul? 
Uh, what are the different meanings it could have? And then how is James using it here? And maybe that will help me understand what James means and if it's really contradictory to Paul or if it's not. And uh, I don't think it is. I think they're, I don't think they're saying different things. Um, but I want to use uh, my, my ability to do a word study to show that that's the case. So I picked the word justified, but then the next step I have is I need to identify the original language word that's behind that English translation of the word justified. And uh, the way that you can do that on Blue Letter Bible is once you identify the word you want to study, you can click right here uh, where it's got the verse reference. So JAS is the abbreviation for James 224, and I'll click that, and it will load uh, this uh, chart that has, this is the Greek text, and then it's got an interlinear Bible underneath it, which just means that there's the English words, and then next to them are the Greek words. So you can see for each English word what the Greek word is that's behind it. And so along this uh, line, you can you can see they've got the Greek words, both in the Greek alphabet and in the English alphabet. You can click this and it will pronounce the word for you, though uh, you don't necessarily need to do that. It's not going to help you with anything. Um, but then really important for us are these numbers that start with G. These are called Strong's numbers and they're, they're numbers that are assigned to each Greek or Hebrew word in the Bible so that uh, you can identify them even if you don't know Greek or Hebrew. So you don't need to know the original languages in order to find these words. And so if we go down to this word justified, right, this is the one we want to study. When we look over, we can see, okay, the Greek word is dikaiao. And the Strong's number is G, that's G for Greek, 1344. And so in order to now take the next step of, uh, of identifying and thinking through uh, the implications of that original word and where it's used uh, elsewhere in Scripture, then I'm going to click uh, this link G1344. So I'm going to click on Strong's number, and that's going to take me to the page for that Greek word, dikaiao. So at the top, you've got the word in Greek, and then you've got the transliteration, which is just the word in the English alphabet. You've got a pronunciation key. It tells you that it's a verb, and it tells you the root word. Uh, which is not particularly important for what we're doing. Um, but as you scroll down on that page, you, you get some important things. You get dictionary aids, which we're going to come back to in the next video. Uh, you've got the outline of biblical usage. Uh, and so this is kind of basic definitions. Um, and then you've got some other definitions here, Strong's definitions. So same guy who came up with Strong's numbering system uh, has some definitions. And then uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon, just a dictionary that um, 
outlines the usage of the word. Now these, these resources are a little bit older, uh, and they're older because um, they're, they're free, uh, and those are the ones that Blue Letter Bible can use without cost because they're in public domain. So um, they're still pretty good, uh, but they're not the, the top of the line, latest and greatest resources, but they should be uh, uh, just fine for the kind of word studies that you're going to be doing. And so but what's really important then is you've got these different resources that you can use. We'll come back and talk about those. But then if you keep scrolling down, then you have uh, concordance results. And the concordance is just takes all of the usages of that Greek or Hebrew word in the Bible, and it lists them for you by verse. And so here it says Strong's number, G1344, that's our word. It matches the Greek word dikaiao, so again, that's our word. And it says that it occurs 40 times in 35 verses uh, in the Greek. And so there are 40 times in the New Testament that this word is used. And then it goes ahead and it lists them all. So there's a couple in Matthew. And there's, looks like, five in Luke, one in Acts. There's a bunch in Romans. And then some others in others of Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and so forth. And we can scroll all the way and, and see all of them down here and here at the bottom here's our verse now in each of these uh, concordance entries it will it will highlight for you the word that's in question and so you see in these ones so this is titus 3 7 so that being justified and then it marks it right after that word is g thirteen forty four. so that shows you that this word justified that's the same greek word uh, and does that for all of these, and that can be important because, say, in a verse like 1 Timothy 3.16, we see that um, the New American Standard reads, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated, G1344, in the Spirit. And so even though the English translation is not justified, this is the same Greek word. And so that's going to be important for us as we, uh, as we go on with our study. Uh, and so in the next video, we're going to work through, now that you have access to all of this information, you know the, the, the original word, you know where it's used in the Bible, uh, you know you, you have some access to some basic definitions and uh, language resources, then we're going to talk about, now that you have that, now what do you do with it? How do you establish the range of meaning of a word? And then uh, how do you decide what it means in the particular passage that you're studying? Uh, and so we need to, to think through uh, those questions for James 2.24. How do you like that? It's pretty cool, huh? I'm super proud of myself. Just so you know, um, that video and then there's another one that we're going to look at in a couple seconds um, are going to be on the website so that you can watch those again um, so you have access to those. So the next step 
you're doing a word study after you've identified the word, found the Greek word, is you have to find the range of meaning of the word. So what, what could the word possibly mean? Uh, and so the way that we do this is you can either use an expository dictionary or something like Blue Letter Bible, uh, or uh, you can take uh, a word, all the word's occurrences, and you can uh, put them together and make as many observations as you can about the way that that word is used and try to figure out what the author might be, might be saying and then start comparing it to what other people say. And that can be especially fruitful because you actually get to see what those words mean in their context and how they're used, but it's probably only feasible if a word is used less than 20 to 25 times, otherwise it just starts getting ridiculous. Now, if you've got a lot of time and you really want to do that and it's a really important word, then by all means, go for it. And that can be really fruitful. Um, but in all likelihood, that's probably going to be the tactic you take if the word is not used all that frequently. Okay? So you look in an expository dictionary and you, you see that there's a bunch of different definitions uh, listed. Uh, and then once you kind of get a handle on what the word could potentially mean, uh, then you start thinking through what uh, does this word most likely mean in the context based on what's going on around it, based on what else the author's saying in different parts of the book, based on if it's someone like Paul, based on what does he say about this in other books? How does he use this word elsewhere? Um, how does this fit with what the rest of the Bible teaches and, and, and so forth? Um, and so uh, rather than work through all of those nuances with you, we're just going to watch another video. But it still counts because it's me talking. In this video, we're going to talk about the next couple steps in doing a basic word study. So if you remember the, the first video, we talked about um, picking a word to study that was significant in the context that we were studying. So we picked the word justify in uh, James 2.24. And then we went and we found the Greek word uh, that justify translates, and that's this word, dikaiao, and we used Blue Letter Bible to, to find that. And so this is where we left off, where we were going to start working through the different times that this word occurs in the New Testament and try to think through what it means. Uh, so before I would do that, I would just try to read uh, a little bit in one of these uh, dictionary aids. Uh, look at the outline of biblical usage, what they say here, uh, and then look at some of these definitions down here to try to get a feel for what the word uh, means and how it's used. Uh, and these are, are uh, put together by people who, who know Greek or who know Hebrew. Uh, and so, uh, and they're not all exactly the same, so everybody kind of classifies things a little bit differently, but uh, if you are looking at all of them, you'll get a better idea of uh, the different kind of options that are out there. Because the next uh, step is to find the range of meaning for the word. So uh, most of the time, words don't just mean one thing. Words have multiple definitions. And so it's important to figure out both what those definitions are and then which one is going to fit in the context that you're looking at. Um, and so the first thing we want to do is try to establish 
what, what are the different things that this word could mean? So how is it used in the New Testament? How is it used elsewhere? What does it mean in those contexts? And then uh, what does it mean in the context that you're studying? And so before you can say what it means, you have to know what it could possibly mean, and then you have to ask what, what, it, what does it actually mean there? So um, I uh, scroll back up here, and I want to look on this, on this page, uh, this page about the Greek word dikaio, uh, which we got to from looking at uh, James uh, 2.24. And I'm going to pop open Vine's Expository Dictionary, which is uh, a little bit of an older resource, but it's a pretty good one. And here at the top, you can see it's telling me there's a verb, the Strong's number, 1330, uh, 1344, the Greek word is dikaio, and then it translates it, justification, justify, or justify. And then it gives the, the definitions. And so it says primarily, it means to deem to be right. Uh, and you have some different definitions. You have, uh, the first one is to show to be right or righteous. And then the second one is to declare to be righteous or to pronounce righteous. And then there are some sub-definitions uh, under that. And then if you keep scrolling down, there's actually a more extended discussion about this word because it's actually very significant in the New Testament. And so there's quite a bit that you could read on there. And there's actually some things in here about the differences between Paul and James. And so I, uh, I want to read that, but maybe a little bit later after I do some of my own work. I don't want to jump right there and just believe whatever they say. I want to see if I can figure it out myself. And then I want to go back and check later and make sure I'm not coming up with anything that's totally wacky. So I look there and then I look, I can look at these definitions as well. And so you have to render righteous or such as he ought to be, to show, exhibit, events. Uh, one to be righteous such as he is and wishes himself to be considered, to declare, pronounce, one to be just righteous or such as he ought to be. And so number two here and number three basically match uh, what we found in Vine's Expository Dictionary. This first one is a little bit different. Uh, this first one means to actually make righteous, uh, to make somebody to be right or to, to be ethically or morally pure. Uh, and so I want to look then at a more extended idea of all that here. This is Thayer's Greek lexicon. And so the most important thing that you're going to be looking at are these things in bold. Uh, these bold words, these are the, the definitions that they're giving. And there's some other important information, but the most important things are, um, are what's in bold. And so, now interestingly... Uh, Thayer's lexicon is usually what Blue Letter Bible uses to, to do the outline of biblical usage. So you're going to see some, um, some similarities there. And so it says for the first definition, uh, it means to make righteous or to render righteous or such as you ought to be. So you see the similar wording. But this meaning is extremely rare, if not altogether doubtful. And so what uh, Thayer is saying is that while it could mean this potentially, um, it, is, it is not at all certain that it actually does mean this or is ever used to mean this. And so that's one that we can probably 
put to the side for the time being and say, well, that's probably not what it means. And then you have the other two. And so this one is to show one to be righteous. Uh, that's, uh, and that's the, that first definition that we saw in Vine's Expository Dictionary, to show one to be in the right, um, to show oneself righteous. And this would kind of match one of uh, our word like vindicated, right? Where um, uh, evidence is brought forward to show that you actually are righteous um, or that you are publicly acknowledged to be righteous. And then the third definition is to declare, pronounce one to be just or righteous. And then, so this is more of the idea of a legal declaration or proclamation, uh, the rendering of a verdict in court where uh, even if you are guilty, uh, in actuality, if the judge declares that you are not guilty, then in the eyes of the law, you are not guilty. You have been acquitted, justified. Uh, and so those are the, the two big definitions then. And so what I do after that is I go down and I look at my concordance results, which we looked at very briefly last time, and I started to go through and try to categorize them. I can see the different ways that they're translated, and I wanted to try to go through and categorize them and, and think through which category do they fit into, and so I I made a Word document here, and on my Word document, I went through and I listed all of the different uses of this word in uh, the New Testament. And so I have the two definitions here, and so I kind of tried to summarize the definitions that I came up with so that I could understand them. And so one definition is that to justify means it's a public demonstration or acknowledgement of being in the right. And so something like to acknowledge somebody is just or to vindicate them, to demonstrate that they are right. And then the second one being a legal declaration that renders the verdict of being in the right, that is to declare righteous or to acquit. Um, and so uh, the first one, a public demonstration, this is simply just uh, showing that somebody actually is right. The second one being uh, a, a legal declaration that somebody is right, even if they are not really right or innocent in and of themselves. So then I just started to try to go through and categorize them as best I could. And I didn't take real long to do this. I just kind of ran down the list and started trying to think through what, what was going on there. And, and so we could, we could debate about some of these, but what we found is, as I go down, I actually see that there's a lot more that are used of the second meaning, but not all of them. And most of the ones that are used for this legal declaration meaning uh, occur in the writings of Paul, and especially in Romans and in Galatians. There's six in Galatians and 14 in Romans, and uh, most of those in Romans, except for maybe two of them, these two, really fit under the second definition. So, but 
when Paul's using it, he's talking about uh, God rendering a legal verdict about people that declares them to be of right standing with him. Yeah, so he acquits them of the, the charges of sin that are brought against them and declares them to be in the right. Um, in the Gospels and in a couple other places, the idea is more of this public demonstration of being uh, in the right. And so, uh, for example, you had in Luke 7.29, it says, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice. And that's the same um, the same word. Um, so it would literally say they justified God. Well, that doesn't mean that they legally declared that God's in the right. It means that they publicly acknowledged that God is just and does what is right. Uh, and so Paul doesn't use this term that much. He does use it uh, in that sense in, uh, in 1 Timothy 3.16 where he says that um, Jesus was revealed in the flesh and was vindicated in the spirit. So literally, he was justified in the spirit, but it doesn't mean uh, justified in that theological sense. It means that he was shown uh, to be righteous, uh, it says in the spirit or by the spirit. And if you go back and listen to my sermon on 1 Timothy 3, 16, and I, and I argue that this is actually a reference to the resurrection, that it's the resurrection that demonstrates that Jesus is indeed uh, righteous, sinless, and was who he said he was, and so it vindicates him. Um, and then you have these three verses that are used in James, and so the question is, how is James using this, this word? Is he using it the same way as, uh, as Paul? Uh, most of the time Paul uses it, or is he using it in this other way? And I think we're very tempted to think that he's using it the same way as Paul because we're used to the word justified uh, being used in, in the way that Paul uses it, especially when it's, uh, when it's paired with things like works and with faith. Um, but I think James is actually using it in a different way. I think he actually means uh, vindicated or publicly demonstrated to be in the right uh, instead of actually this legal declaration. And that's important because if, if James is using it the exact same way as Paul, then that might mean that James and Paul believe different things about the gospel. And, and I don't think that's true. And so I think if I were to put these verses uh, in the first category, I think it makes sense because I think James, if we now go and we use our other tools and we look at context and we, we look at uh, the way that uh, James's argument develops, what we find is that James is really uh, more concerned not about how people uh, get to be right with God, but how people show that they are right with God. Uh, and so it's not that James is saying you get saved, you get forgiven on the basis of what you do for God. I think what he's saying is uh, you see that a person's faith is demonstrated uh, and shown to be genuine and shown that they have been uh, declared to be in the right with God by what they do. And so we're saved by faith alone, but that faith uh, does not come alone. It also brings with it the fruit of salvation, which is, which is works. And so I think 
James and Paul are addressing different problems. Paul's addressing uh, the problem of people who think that they can earn their salvation by their works. And he says, nope, that's not the way it happens. It happens by faith. And then James is addressing uh, people who are saying, oh, well, if it's just by faith, then I can just kick back and relax. I don't, I don't need to do anything. I can just say I'm saved by faith and I'm good. And James says, nope, that's not the way it works either, because if you're really saved, you're going to produce works. Um, and I think there's some other reasons, if we were to go and look at James 2, why, why you would see that this is actually what James is arguing. But this is one of, the, one of the reasons why doing things like word studies are important. If you didn't do this, you maybe wouldn't know that the, this same Greek word could have these two different meanings, uh, and that, they, uh, that it's very significant theologically in these uh, sections. So hopefully that helps uh, as a way for you to be able to do some, some good word studies. There's a lot of other tools and resources that you can use, but using this one at Blue Letter Bible is probably a pretty easy and, and quick way to get access to this and, and get you started with it. Is uh, that helpful? Would you tell me if it wasn't? No, okay. It's the best kind of relationship. Just lie to me to keep me feeling better about myself. I'm glad we're all friends. What's that? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Is this important? Yeah, I, I mean, in this particular context. I mean, we're, we're talking about the gospel, right? So it's a lot of work, but it's really worthwhile work and it's really important work so that somebody comes to you and says, well, the Bible says that you're saved by works. You'd be like, well, not exactly. Let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what James says and why he says it that way. Did you know that the Greek word there has actually two different meanings? And can I show you why they don't contradict? Now, if we were doing an exhibition of James 2, I would show you why I think in the context exactly that's the case. Um, and uh, if you want to talk about that later, we can. So, your turn. On page 94 in your workbook, I'm not going to make you use Blue Letter Bible and do all, do all that work. We're going to do some work on the word antichrist. It's a fun word. Everybody likes talking about this. Um, Unfortunately, when we get to the end of this, you will not know who the Antichrist is. I'm sorry, I don't know. Um, and if you think you know, you're probably wrong. But this word only occurs a couple times, I think five times in the New Testament. And you might think normally, oh, I'm sure it occurs a bunch of times in the book of Revelation. But it doesn't. It actually never occurs in the book of Revelation. It only occurs in First and Second John. It's the only place in the Bible where the word antichrist is used. Now, necessarily the concept that we think theologically about the antichrist, we bring some other stuff into that, but the word antichrist. And so the question is, what, when John uses the word antichrist, what does he mean? So, what I want you to do is I want you to take the next, I don't know, eight, ten minutes, I want you to look at these verses, and I want you to, um, at your tables, just make some observations about what do each of these verses 
say about the Antichrist? Say about what, how does John use that word? Um, what, what are things that occur around it? What can we learn about it? And then we're going we're gonna to come back together and try to, to synthesize those things and see if we can't come up with uh, kind of a working definition or summary of how John uses that word. So take the next few minutes and do that. And we'll, we'll come back together. All right, let's, uh, I'm sure you guys probably haven't made it all the way through all the verses, but I'd like to try to get a couple minutes here for us to, to work through some of these. So 1 John 2.18, what do we learn about the word Antichrist? Okay, there's more than one, and there's more to come, right? So, many have appeared, right? So, this is John's writing at the end of the first century. So, here at the end of the first century, John says, uh, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. So, already then, there are Antichrists, okay? Okay. What else? Do you learn anything else from, from what he says there in verse 18? Yeah, Bob. Sure. So could you, could you intertwine the Antichrist, uh, Antichrists with false teachers? Uh, I think if you continue, continue reading down, that's probably who he's referring to. He's calling these false teachers Antichrists. Um, Interesting, in verse 19, it says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And so these antichrists are people who came from where? The church. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the word antichrist means against Christ. Uh, so there are people who are opposed to Jesus, and they oppose Jesus in some particular ways. Um, the very end of verse 18, there's something that we learn uh, about, uh, about Antichrist and the implication that this word has. Um, it's the last hour. So here, first century, John says, um, Antichrists have come, and by this we know that it's the last hour. Yeah, Bert. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so if, yeah, so, so in verse 18, there's, there is, you heard antichrist, singular, is coming, and even now many antichrists, plural, have come or have appeared. And so there seems to be a distinction, there's, there's these people who are already here, and then there's a single, singular figure that's coming, but it doesn't say when. It just says he's coming in the future at some point. But the fact that there are any people that can be called antichrists that are present 
right then in the first century, John says, means it's the last hour. That's another question is, what is the last hour or what are the last days? That's a different exercise. Well, what, what does it say? It says that they heard. It says they heard the Antichrist is coming. So, now, you, what we'll have to do if we want to think more about this theologically, so when we start bringing in things like, is this the beast? Is this the man of lawlessness from Second Thessalonians 2? That's all theological. That's all as we start putting all the pieces of the Bible together and say, are these things talking about the same thing, just using different words? Or what's, what's that look like? Uh, so, Right here where John's using it, he says, you heard that the singular figure is coming. Right now, many of them are here. So then the question is, does that also refer to somebody in the future? Right? So, yeah. Right. But it's the same theme of the preceding spirits and doctrines and dreams. Yep. So it's that multiple. Yep. It's the deceiving, it's the deceiving spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So are there are there other verses? So Suzanne's saying that she looked at First Timothy four one. Seems to be some similar language and description there. Is that also referencing the same thing? Uh, it, it could be. Uh, it certainly could be. It seems like it's on, it's, it's on the same page. Um, but the word antichrist isn't used there. And so we have to say, well, is that the way that John is using it? Well, possibly, but, but we don't know. Yeah, Brent. Yeah. So that's different than. So I mean, I can actually make the argument that same same thing of Christ, Christ. Yeah. It doesn't seem like he's making a distinction. Yeah. So based on verse First uh, John four three, uh, it says that the spirit of Antichrist um, is the one who does not confess, or who does not confess Jesus. Uh, that, that spirit is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist who's, uh, you've heard is coming and now is already in the world. And so then we have to start thinking, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're not supposed to be looking for one that's coming? Right? And so and we're not talking theologically. We're just saying, what does the text right here say? Um, and so if you want to start making arguments about, well, is it the same thing as this person or that person or this figure or that figure? then we're going to have to start putting all those other texts together. But those texts don't use the word antichrist. doesn't mean that they're not talking about the same thing, but it means that that may not be exactly what John's talking about when he uses the word antichrist, or that the word antichrist has a broader meaning than just this one figure that we think comes at the end times, that it's actually broader than that, and maybe that one figure fits the mold of all these false teachers and deceivers and, and so forth. Um, what else did you guys see? And, and any of the verses? Okay. 
Okay, they're challenging the deity of Christ. See, in verse uh, 222, you see, uh, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So they say Jesus is not the Christ. Deny the Father and the Son. Okay. So, so you have them challenging that they're saying Jesus isn't the Christ; he's not a big deal. In Second John, you have the the Antichrist is the one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, and so it's not denying the deity of Christ; it's denying the humanity of Christ. One that says, "Oh no, no, Jesus just appeared to be uh, a human; he wasn't actually." human. Fortunately, a Jesus who isn't human can't save humans. So it's a big deal. Uh, and so believing in the incarnation, according to Second John, is a really big deal. If you do not believe that Jesus came in the flesh and was fully a man, it's of the spirit of the Antichrist. It's a big deal. And so what you find is you start putting all of these verses together and you start saying, well, what does John say about this? Is, is these... Uh, here, this is the the summary that you can use. Um, the terms only used in John's letters, uh, it is it to it is the thing it is used to. Wow, I really did not proofread this. It's used of both. I think it's supposed to be. It's used of both present false teachers, so people who are teaching some kind of falsehood then presently, and possibly a future individual false teacher is a big deal. These false teachers oppose Christ by spreading a specific heresy about him. And you see that as you, as you look through that these are the people who are antichrist, the, the people who deny that Jesus came in the flesh, the people who deny that uh, he is the Christ, the people who deny the Father and the Son. They came out of the church and now they seek to deceive the church. And they were present in John's day and their presence signifies that it's the last hour. Now, how that fits with all the other places in Scripture that, that use kind of similar terminology, um, you know, the beast in Revelation and all that, like then, then that's as you do correlation and you seek to say, okay, so this is what Antichrist is described as. Now, I've got to look through, I've got to look in Second Thessalonians 2 and understand what does Paul say about this man of lawlessness who's coming and are these the same thing and that's the work of theology it's putting together what the bible says and trying to to synthesize it and come up with it somebody was going to ask a question i thought i saw a hand yeah 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 Well, sure. So in First John four three, it talks about the spirit of Antichrist. And so, what does that what does that mean? Is that mean like a demon or something like that, or does it mean just kind of the you know talk about the spirit of the age, kind of the ethos that defines somebody? It's like this person has the spirit of Antichrist means they act like him, um, that kind of thing. So yeah, those are good questions. So um, at, yes, less is the last one, and then we're going to be done. Well, so 
in, in 1 John, it looks like what they're doing is they're going around, these people who have gone out from the church are going around spreading these particular falsehoods about Christ. And so that's where we would come up with this idea. So does it say false teacher? No, I think that's the idea. There are people who are going around spreading uh, heresy about the person of Christ, having come out of the church. Okay. So we're going to, yes, is it quick? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, what's what about what's the difference between those who are teaching things that are contradictory to what the apostles teach and those who leave some stuff out? Not necessarily, yeah. Um it's a bit off topic. So it's it's a little bit off topic. So it's a good it's a good question. Um prob- probably not something we can get into right now. But it's a that's a that's a good question. Um, sorry, I wish we could. I wish I wish we could get into it, but it's a but it's a great. Yeah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, so maybe we can talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're actually going to come back and talk about this a little bit more in the next class because there are some specific kind of dangers to doing word studies that I want you guys to avoid. Um, so we're going to talk about those uh, later. So I'm going to run through this. These are fun. We'll talk about those next time. You got my notes, so you'll kind of see that already. Uh, so we're going to talk about that the next time we get together. And your homework for, we have two weeks. Um, in your workbook, pages 96 to 100. Dig deeper, uh, pages 69 to 78. Uh, the workbook, basically, you're going to do a word study on the term fellow workers in the New Testament. It's used in Philippians, so you're going to look at uh, how do, do Paul and the other authors of the New Testament use the word fellow workers? And what, what can you glean from that? That's on page 99 in your workbook. Um, it's got the list of, of all the references, so you don't need to work, uh, uh, look those up. All those are there for you, so you'll um, you just need to look them up in your Bibles. You don't need to look them up in a concordance and then try to put together your observations and come up with a, a working summary definition of Uh, what the New Testament means when it uses the term fellow workers. Okay? All right. I'll see you in two weeks.